and the video is worth watching. At, uh, I don't know if you call it a docudrama, but it's, uh, it's worth watching. It'll give you a sense of what it would be like. You see lots of uh, the things that are going on. And we have sent uh, lots of teams in the past down to Haiti. And um, you know, that's sort of been off limits for some time because of the violence there. So different side of the same island, but uh, another great opportunity. So be thinking or praying about that. So it'd be for next year, tentatively September of next year. Uh, guys, how, how well do we uh, know each other or how well do we think we know each other? Um, sometimes you'll, uh, perhaps in passing you know someone or you know something about someone. But if you have a conversation with them, you realize, man, my, my take on them was way off. Another way you get to know people well is simply to visit them in their home. Uh, we tend to be more ourselves in our home setting. Uh, if you go into someone's house, just walking in the house tells you things about them. You know, are they sloppy? Are they neat? Uh, do they listen to music? Are they musicians? Do they read? You know, you simply walk in and you see elements of their life on display in front of you. If you go into someone's small family business, it's more of the same. In fact, in fact, there's a body uh, work guy on I-70 west of town, and uh, he'd been recommended for a, uh, this has nothing to do with where I'm going, but it was that thought of, uh, so if you went to somebody's small family business, it'd be that same thing. You get a sense of the family from simply participating with them in their business, and uh, this guy was so nice, and he was so cheap on a repair for me, and you know, and I just feel good interacting with him, and you know, come to find out he's a Christian brother, and had a lovely time, but I'm interacting with him in his business, and I'm getting to know him as I do. So, what are we like at home? What are what are we really like? What what characterizes us? And uh, if you look back in the Old Testament, we're going to be in Psalm 101 this morning. I'll just cue you for that here in a minute. Uh, David, the son of Jesse, remember, started out in his family business. It was not big and it wasn't impressive. He took care of a few sheep. His brothers chided him when he'd grown up just a little bit. He was in the family business of shepherding sheep before God called him to shepherd his people, Israel. And so that was a big step up. And you can read in his own story some of the ways in which he says his shepherding in the back fields was preparation for what he would do later for the nation. But one of the things you see about David is he takes God and God's things seriously. And so what you'll see in this psalm, Psalm 101, is that he wants to make sure that the person God is and the things God values are represented in his leadership as a king and they're on display in the nation of Israel. So that if somebody came to the nation of Israel, the life they would see there would represent God and God's character and God's values. You know, this is one of the things that Jesus brings up in the Gospels when he goes to the temple and he says, you've made the place that's supposed to be a prayer for people from all walks of life, the Gentiles coming in, you've made it a robber's den. You're misrepresenting the Father whose house this is. So David wants to get it right. He's going to be the king over God's people, from God's city, and he says he wants his rule and reign to represent God and God's characteristics. Psalm 101 is a royal psalm, not only because David wrote it, the king wrote it, but it's also about the way he wants to rule as king in Israel. Uh, verse 2, we'll read the psalm here in just a minute, and then we'll work through some of the big rocks, but if you look at verse 2b for just a second, 
David says there's this plaintive line when he says, when will you come to me? He's speaking about God, and he says, when will you come to me? And there's a pretty good guess. Uh, I think this is the way we should view it. You remember uh, David started as king in the south in Hebron, but then he moved his capital to Jerusalem. And when he got there, he wanted his city to be God's city and God's city to be his city. So he's going to bring in the Ark of the Covenant. Your study sheet has this, 2 Samuel 6. He's going to bring in the Ark. So you remember that Ark, that sort of, sort of golden trunk and had angels on the lid looking down. It had rings around it. And God's presence would literally, physically, visually be there in this kind of glowing orb above that mercy seat. And so David wanted to bring God and God's presence in the ark into Jerusalem. So God's house is my house, my house is God's house. And so they started to, but they didn't do it the way God told them to. And they were, they were doing something well-intentioned, but it was out of ignorance, and it was disrespectful because of that to God. God had told them how to handle his ark. And they didn't read it, they didn't bother to, to treat God and God's presence at the ark the way God required. So as they're moving it on a cart drawn by animals and it starts to shake and fall, a priest, Uzzah, puts his hand up, touches the ark. His intentions were fine, but God struck him dead because it was disrespectful. Well, David is frustrated, he's upset, he doesn't know what to do. His, his plan, his desire is foiled. But for about three months, time goes by, and the place the ark had rested, it's highly blessed. And David says, we're going we're to try this again, but we're going to do it God's way this time. And so it's likely that this song was written in that three-month period before the ark was successfully brought in, because David's saying, sort of in this frustration or this plaintive tone, God, what is it going to take, or when can your presence be here in my city, in the capital city of Jerusalem? Uh, Alan Ross's summary of Psalm 101 says, The king resolves to maintain purity in his realm by purging evil from his personal life, from his court, and from his capital, in order that loyal love and justice might prevail, and that the Lord might be pleased to dwell in their midst. So eight verses, it's a short psalm, but it's loaded with personal applications. And also, let me, let me just say this on the front end. Uh, we'll, we'll mention this later too. Uh, David's desires for David and for Jerusalem and for Israel could never be fulfilled through David or in his lifetime. And, and on one hand, when we look at Scripture, uh, like David, we want to aspire nobly. We want to raise our eyes and, and, and Christ, we're being transformed into Christ's image. We want that Christ-like transformation to be at work. We want to be willing and we want to be consciously part of that. Having said that, we don't want to fall into simply religious moralism, where it's a list of things, do this, don't do that. Scripture tells us in a lot of places in the New Testament, do some things, don't do some things. If that's all we get, we're just religious. We're just moralists, and that's not the life we're called to. So we want to see with David, we want to aspire to the things God calls us to, and we want to recognize at the same time they're only fully fulfilled in and through Christ, and we'll sin in these bodies, we'll fail whatever standards we think God means for us to bring into our life, we'll fail in those too, so we get that, we get forgiveness, and we get back up, and we get going. But this psalm should inspire us. And it should inspire us to be a certain kind of people, and it should also inspire us to be a certain kind of church, a certain kind of people, because the church of Jesus Christ on the earth is his representative. So for us, 
we should be thinking like David thought, I want the place that I live and I have influence, I want it to reflect God and God's character. Okay, so those, that'll be the points of application. So Psalm 101, I'm going to read the ESV, it's a Psalm of David. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 501. He says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So go back to verse 1. Verse 1 is a heading verse, and so it's going to inform us about everything that David's going to follow up with. And look what he says. So he's going to sing, and the song he composes is going to have two primary themes. He says, I'm going to sing of steadfast love and justice. So the theme of the song I'm composing is steadfast love and justice. And steadfast love is a, a term that we've talked about a lot in the past. I believe second only to holy, it's the most common description of God himself, that God is a God who's characterized by loyal love or steadfast love. If we were talking in the New Testament, we might say it's agape love, it's unconditional love, it's love that doesn't stop or lie down. You can count on it. Steadfast love has said used almost 250 times in the Old Testament, often used to describe God. So as David's thinking, let's just assume, tried to get the ark in, hadn't been able to yet, and I'm thinking about bringing God's presence in, and I'm writing a song as I think about this, he says, I'm going to highlight God's kind of steadfast love. That's one of the key themes that I'm going to bring up for myself and for my reign over God's people. He says also justice this term, mishpat, is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. There's tons of synonyms, but basically it means what is right, what is righteous. It means a judgment or a verdict that represents God's kind of judgment. It, it reflects what God values. It's right, it's righteous. So David starts this royal song by declaring two key elements of God's nature. He is characterized by steadfast love and justice. So that's the song David's singing, steadfast love and justice. They're the hallmarks of God as David's thinking about this, and David wants these and their elements to be the hallmarks of his rule in Israel. David celebrates God and God's character so fully that he's determined that his kingdom will reflect these key characteristics. And before we move on, just ask yourself a question. If, if I just bring up, if the, if the subject, the topic, the person of God is brought up in my mind, if I just say, what do you think of God? What are your thoughts of God? What springs to mind? 
What springs to mind? What's the first thing on my mind if, if somebody says, uh, who is God, or what do, you, what do you think about God, or what, who is God to you? Do, you? do you know what I mean? So I could think of God as a disciplinarian in the sky. That might be my initial thought. Or I might think of a God who judges all the time. And by the way, God does judge, and judgment comes up in this song big time. But, but what do I know of God? And if I'm emulating what my thought of God is, what does that make me? What does it make me? Does it represent God as it really is in Scripture, or is it something else? And it can go either way. But what David understands to be true about God guides him in what he says he intends to do and how he means to represent God. It, it does us well to get that right. We're going to look at positively what David celebrates and supports, and then negatively at what David is determined to avoid as he's filling this role of leading or shepherding God's people. I tried to emphasize a little bit in my reading the I will statement. So there's nine direct I will statements in this song. So we're going to break this up, and, and there's actually inference for more, but, but nine clear. So four are positives, four positive I wills, and then five negatives I will not, or I won't, or I won't allow something, I'm going to get rid of something negatively. So four positives, and then five negatives. And here's a note, too. <clears throat> I was struck by this. So uh, when the great king of Assyria, Sennacherib, when he wanted to boast or when he wanted to describe his rule and his kingdom, he boasted about the army and the military might. Sennacherib, a Gentile king of Assyria. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wanted to boast, wanted to brag about his rule and his kingdom, he looked out over the city of Babylon and he praised himself for the majesty of the city and for the size of the geography that he ruled over. So as those kings thought about their rule and what that looked like, its military might, its, uh, its magnificence or success, as we typically have metrics for that on the earth, when David says he's considering what he wants his rule and God's kingdom based on his influence to look like, has nothing to do with wealth, has nothing to do with the size of the geography. He says, God, what I want to do and what I want to see replicated in your kingdom is your own character. So when David looks out, it's not the stuff the Gentile kings are bragging about. It's, God, we want to look like you. We want our house to look like your house. We want your covenant people to reflect you and your values, your characteristics. That's significant. Well, look at, uh, look at the four positives. I will, I will embrace, I will support, I will practice. Uh, back to verse 1 again. I will sing, I will make music. Uh, I love that D David uh, is gifted, of course, in song and in music. And so he says, I'm going to take those things I know to be true about God and I'm going to combine them in my imagination with the artistic skills and discipline God's given me. And so I'm going to declare what's true about God. I'm going to do it through song. And I'm going to use what God's given me, the way he's gifted me, so that I can do that. I'm going to celebrate God. And I'm doing so in a way that others will hear. And so 3,000 years later, we're reading the same song. Isn't that cool? 
So David sat down to, and I'm going to sing about God's loving kindness and his justice. And I'm going to put it in a form that people can sing and remember. And 3,000 years later, that effort is still bearing fruit. And when he says, I'm going to bring my gift at music to bear, it's to highlight these two qualities, faithful love and justice. Uh, look at verse 2. He says, I will, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I'm going to ponder means gain insight, wisdom, understanding by training or observation. Uh, this, is, this is huge, 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 huge for us. Uh, humans are tempted in all times and all places. We carry temptation within us. We don't need much help. But guys, we live in a remarkable time related to exterior elements of temptation. So David says, I'm going to ponder, I'm going to think about the way that's blameless. I'm thinking about this when I'm not facing temptation. I'm going to sit down and discipline myself by figuring out what does it take to live before God blamelessly, in innocence. So it means to be sound, complete, wholesome, innocent. Think about uh, the opening chapter of Proverbs. So Solomon is author and collector of what we read in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And do you remember in part what he says in chapter 1? Uh, he says, when I was young and innocent, the only son in the sight of my father, he spoke to me. And who would that be? That would be David. If Solomon's speaking, he's speaking about his father, David. And Proverbs, in part, flows out of David's desire to know wisdom and transfer it to Solomon. So when we read Proverbs, we're reading a book that's given to help us proactively think, how can I walk and live blamelessly? Guys, here's the thing. If you don't think about it, if you don't plan for it, you can't do it. That's always been true, but it's more true now than ever. Um, Proverbs 7 is a passage I've loved because it's so visual. A dad brings Junior over and he says, I looked out my window and this is what I saw. I saw the country hick walk into the city. You know what he hadn't done? He hadn't pondered the way that was blameless. He's naive, he's uninstructed, and he's not ready for what's coming. And so he meets the, the woman of the night and she deceives him, and, and it's, it's describing basically an animal being led to slaughter. He wasn't prepared. David says, I'm pondering, I'm thinking about this, I'm exercising my mind to figure out what does it take for me to live and rule blamelessly. David will proceed in his leadership thoughtfully so that his life and decisions are above reproach or what they should be promoting godliness. So we have to work at this. If you're not prepared ahead of time, you're not prepared. If we're not thinking about what does it take in my time and my place to live blamelessly, you won't be ready. You aren't ready. We aren't ready. He says, a third, verse 2b, I will walk with integrity within my house. Now, this is a commitment. It's twofold. So on one hand, he says, I'm, I'm committed to integrity. Now, lots of us say that. I'm, I'm committed to uh, an upright way of living life. I'm going to say the same thing I do. I'm going to do the same thing I say, and it's going to reflect God's godliness. That's my commitment. But he adds that it's in my house. Where is this starting? His commitment to integrity starts in his own house. 
most of us care less about what people that we live with think than what other people think. David says, before I do anything more broadly or promote anything through the nation, I'm committed to a life of integrity within my own house, in my own backyard. And this is very similar. This isn't on your study sheet, but Ezra 7.10. Ezra was a godly priest who leaves Babylon to come back to Israel. And it says of Ezra, he studied God's word, he did it, he practiced it, and then he taught it. He didn't teach it before he'd lived it. And he couldn't teach what he didn't know. That's exactly what David's saying here. I'm committing myself to integrity, but I'm starting in my own home, in my own backyard. Before I bring this out to the rest of the nation, I'm living it myself in the place where few others will see or know. You know, a good question is for us is, what are we like as Christians at home or when no one else is looking? That's what David says here. I'm committed to integrity, and I'm committed right where my life starts, right in my own family and my own backyard. By the way, uh, 1 Timothy 3, this is a big deal. This is something we talk about as leaders in the church here. You know, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 uh, list qualifications for uh, elders, leaders, shepherds in the local church. And one of the key things there is, uh, it says um, uh, how a man leads in his own house is key to whether or not he's prepared to lead in God's house. And so it has to do with his uh, children. Are his children respectful? And and are they obedient? Uh, Is he a good husband? Is he a good father? And uh, the Apostle Paul writes, if he doesn't know how to manage his own house, how could he possibly manage the house of God or the church of the living God? That, that his leadership is being proved not broadly, but narrowly in his own house. Uh, there's a guy that I enjoy reading. He's a pastor, fair well known in the country, and he gets a, he, he's a lightning rod for criticism. And part of that he really enjoys. Uh, but here's the thing. I loved it. He was critiqued recently. And uh, I love that the critiquer who who was sort of out of his element and out of his depth because he wasn't really uh, prepared to write on this guy's life or ministry. But he said this, the guy's critiquing, he acknowledges, you know what? He has a great family. His kids are believers. They're following Christ. His grandkids are following Christ. It was this acknowledgement that even if I disagree with him in some other things, I can tell you he's clearly been exemplary in his own home. That's no small thing. David says, my integrity starts in my house, among my family members. So that's that's narrow. That's where I start. But look at verse 6. Then he applies it more broadly. He is king. He he does have a role to fill in the nation on this same thing. Verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. We we would think of this as uh, cabinets. David's saying it's only those kind of men that are committed to integrity that are going to be recruited to my cabinet, that are going to help me rule and reign God's covenant people. So they've got to be committed to integrity and innocence. And those are the ones who will join me in my leadership. So if they don't meet that qualification, they're not going to represent God through me in helping rule God's covenant people. Those that share David's commitment to godliness can share his life and his responsibilities. Um, 
Psalm 16 is written also by David, and one of the verses there that I think speaks to this. So as a leader looking for other leaders that can help him, he's looking for people with similar convictions, similar values. Uh, He delights in these who are committed to integrity and blamelessness. And Psalm 16.3 says, as for the saints, so, so David's in Israel and he's thinking of the holy ones in Israel around him. He says, as for the saints, they are the majestic ones, one translation, or excellent ones, another, in whom my soul delights. David says, when I look out on God's people at his holy ones, his saints, that's what thrills my heart. Well, David's looking out over his kingdom for folks that can help rule in Israel that share that same heart, the excellent ones, the majestic ones. Uh, Before we move on, how are we doing at accentuating the positive? So at embracing and affirming Christ-like formation in our lives and in our homes. If we wrote our own, it could be four, it could be two or ten. If we wrote a list, our version of Psalm 101, and we said, I will, what would they be? What are we committed to? In fact, one of the ways you could do this is say, what am I doing right now? What am I committed to? Eyes wide open, view of my own life. What am I committed to right now based on what I say and do, etc.? Another thing, though, aspirationally is what, what sh- thinking of myself, sort of my best way forward, what should I say of myself? I will. I will be committed to. I will do this. I will do that. Positively, what would our list look like? What does it look like? What might it look like going forward? And this, again, is just to say um, we don't want to be moralistic. We don't want to be merely religious. We want to live knowing that uh, we have an old sinful self that God didn't save. It was crucified with Christ. It doesn't do good, and it can't do good. We've got a new sinless self based on new birth, God's seed, His, His Word, His new life implanted in us. And so we are simply called to walk out Christ's new life in us. You see this, Larry mentioned in Romans uh, 7, there's this challenge. In Romans 8, the life of, the, life of uh, the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus, we ascend sort of above that old life. Colossians talks about it. Galatians 5 talks about it. So we want to be thinking about life in a way that, Lord, we want to positively accentuate the life of Christ in us. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Christ's life in me, that's what I want to accentuate. What am I saying I will to so that Christ's life in me is being elevated? So there's four positives. I will. I'm committed to doing some certain things. There's also five negatives. I will not. I will shun. I will cut off. I will not allow. Five negatives. I will not. Look back at verse 3. I will not. Set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Anything that is worthless. So he is saying ahead of time, I've made a commitment. This is like Job, uh, where Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I have a standard. I've, I've made some decisions already. If you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel 1, I think it's verse 7 or 8. Uh, Daniel said, it says, before trouble came, I made up my mind. Daniel made up of my mind that he would not violate his own conscience before God, no matter what was required by the Babylonians. Well, that's what's going on here. 
Uh, David says, before my, I get out and my day starts, I've already made a commitment that I'm not going to give my attention, my eyes, my imagination, my, my focus to anything that's worthless. That's worthless. That word in Hebrew is used a couple other times. It gets transliterated as Belial. Belial. And so two or three occasions in the Old Testament, it describes someone as a son of Belial. So if you called someone a son, you say that person is characterized by whatever follows. They're a son of righteousness. They live righteously. He's a son of Belial. His life is characterized by those things that are worthless. They're not helpful. They're not positive. They're a waste. David says, I've committed myself ahead of time to avoid that which is worthless. For us, Philippians 4.8 would be something along that same line. Remember there, Paul's admonition, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, those are the things that we should focus our attention on. And guys... <clears throat> We, we are the most visually driven generation in history because we live on smartphones and we watch uh, TV and we've got the internet. And I wonder if we just, what, what do you guess the percentage of stuff we see falls under David's rubric of worthless? Or if I just said to myself this, um, if I said no, so I'm cued for it. When I start to see something that God would say is base, is not helpful, is worthless, if I cued myself and I say, when I see it, I'm going to turn away or I'm going to turn it off or I'm going to you know, change my attitude or whatever I'm thinking about, what would that look like? And, and, and take that further. If I said I'm committed to avoiding viewing... Uh, given my, my time to things that are worthless, how much time would I save in a day or a month or a year or a lifetime for something better, something that in a formative sense helped me become the person in Christ God's calling me to be? And you don't have to be, <clears throat> excuse me, prudes about this at all. Does something help me? Does it encourage me? Or does it take me down? I'm saying ahead of time, I'm turning it off, if, it does, if it's not wholesome in a way that I'm encouraged by. Again, he's being proactive. He's not waiting till something comes on the horizon. He's saying ahead of time, I'm not going to go there when it does come. If we follow David's advice, what would that look like in, in our schedule, in our time? What would that look like for me? Uh, look at verse 4. A perverse heart shall be far from me i will know nothing of evil perverse is twisted it's morally crooked and devious evil is bad disagreeable inferior ethically wicked david says this is these are not only to be avoided he's saying this is personal for me because he says they're going to be far from me i will know no evil i will know no evil it's not that evil's not out there it's not that wickedness doesn't abound He's saying, that's not what I'm going to be connected to. I'm going to get rid of those elements. They're still there, but they're not there for me. David, again, makes a rejection of evil, a personal application before he tries to enforce it on others because we go to verse 5, 5a. He says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Now, guys, he's referencing the ninth commandment. 
So, you know, uh, it's, it's usually it's stated briefly, uh, don't lie. That's not what it means. It means don't slander. Don't lie about other people. So, and, and by the way, the language of God's justice in this is about not only a negation, not only a refusal to entertain, but it's also about condemning it and getting rid of it in Psalm 101. So David says unapologetically, I am going to destroy the would-be destroyer. The one who's trying to rob life or respect or esteem from someone else by lying about them, intentionally slandering them, I am going to destroy that would-be destroyer. That person who's destroying others with the words of their mouth is not going to abide in my kingdom. I'm going to destroy them. Destroy is a big word. Uh, it's exterminate. Now, probably none of us here would say we're slanderers. I hope. That I'm intentionally lying about others to harm them. But it does raise the question about how careful am I when I'm speaking about someone else? How careful am I when I'm speaking about someone else? If I'm speaking about someone else, do I need to say what I'm saying about them? Because sometimes there's a need. Do I need to say it? Is it true? If they were here, would they recognize what I said as true? It does raise the question, if we're not slanderers, okay, that's good, but are we careful in what we say about others? Are we inadvertently, not because we intend to, but are we inadvertently bringing some form of destruction on others because we're not careful in what we say? Look at the second part of verse 5, 5b. He says, I will not endure the arrogant and proud, uh, characterized by a haughty look, uh, by a haughty look. Um, you know, God loves some things and God hates some things. And we did a series uh, several years ago from uh, Proverbs 6, and God hates some things. The six things God hates, even seven. And one of the things he hates is a haughty look. You know, guys, the, the Savior, the King that is King over us, the Savior who saved us, he came in humility, right? And he told his guys, his shepherds, his under-shepherds, he says, you can't do this like the Gentiles do it. Because they lord it over them. They say we're all that. And he says, nope, if you follow me, if you're shepherds after me, it's, you take the lowest place. You, you don't take the place of honor, you take the lowest place. You're the servant of all. Or you're not serving in my name the way I call people to serve. Or you think of John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and says, you know, you call me rabbi and teacher and it's so. And if I, your leader, if I washed your feet, then certainly you, you're capable, you can wash other people's feet. So it's a call, and David understood this, it's a call to humility. David says, I'm going to lead in humility. I'm not going to abide uh, pride. I will not endure the proud, the haughty look. Uh, you never get past that one. Uh, look at verse 8. I will destroy the wicked and cut off evil from the city of God. In fact, he says he's going to do this morning by morning, first thing. Guys, in our time and culture, if when David says, I will destroy the wicked, it sounds harsh to us. I think as a culture, because we're, we're well-intended and we want to focus on love and forgiveness, and as Christians we should, this is all good, but God is, we know this, He's never less just than He is loving. He's never less loving than just. And you, know, you see those juxtaposed, do we not, 
in the, the greatest thing that's ever happened in the cosmos at Jesus' crucifixion. What do you see? You see God loved the world. Okay, so Jesus is sent, and, and he's going to redeem, but he's got to satisfy God's justice, and that's why he dies. So you see God's love on the cross. You see God's justice on the cross. He's never more one than the other. So he wanted to love us and save us, but he's got to fulfill his own justice. You see those both at the cross. And, and that's here too. So David says, as part of leading God's people, he is committed to destroying the wicked. And you notice what he says? He says, morning by morning, it's first thing. When I, got, when I get up every, does this sound strange? When I get up every morning, I'm going to find those wicked and I'm going to get them. First thing. Morning by morning, first thing. But consider this. The worthless, perverse, evil, slanderers, haughty, proud, arrogant, deceitful, liars, wicked, evildoers will have no place in David's kingdom. In God's city, among God's people, in the place David has authority, to the degree possible in a fallen world, David says evil will be excluded. I believe it's El Salvador has a new leader, a new-ish leader. And El Salvador led, I, I might be in all the worlds, but it was at least in Central and South America, it was one of the murder capitals of the world. And this guy came in, and, and this isn't a perfect illustration by any means, but this guy came in, and he basically said, I'm arresting all the gang members I can find. Now, he's not, they're not getting individual trials. This fails a justice test at one level, okay, but just stick with me on the big picture. He rounds them all up, he puts them in prison, and he says, I'm throwing away the key. Now, that sounds unjust to us on one level, and on one level it was, but guess what happened to the murder rate in El Salvador? It plummeted. He got rid of the wicked, and suddenly life in El Salvador got better. And it's, it, it's getting better and better. It's, uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, When evil isn't punished quickly, more evil is encouraged. So David says, I'm going to cut off the wicked as soon as I see them. And by doing so, I'm guaranteeing that the nation is not going to be subject to this kind of encouragement to evil and wickedness and violence. And guys, if you look at the United States today and you look at the way major cities are run, there's zero commitment to justice and violence and lawlessness is flourishing. And David said that's not going to happen in God's people because we're going to cut it off as soon as we see it. We're going to weed the garden. We're going to pull the weeds. Now, again, um, we would say today, you know, we're sharing the gospel with those weeds. <laughs> Before they get sprayed with the weed out or whatever, we're sharing the gospel with them, right? Uh, but this is a thing that, that David says his kingdom is going to reflect God and God's character because he's going to take the wicked and the evil out. So big picture. To the four positive I wills, I'm going to do some things. I'm committed to some things. David adds five negatives to define what he intends to live before God and lead the nation in. His desire after God's own heart was to have a city and a nation that looked like God's home in what was affirmed and included and what was rejected and excluded. Now, the question, so how did David do? These are noble aspirations. Sort of on the, in the first decade, at least, of his 40-year his reign. So still on the front end of everything. How'd he do? Now, if we know David's record, we know on one hand, on one hand, 
he, mailed, he failed miserably, right? So personally he failed. Within the nation he failed miserably. Adultery, murder, census. The people suffered. The sheep were slaughtered because the shepherd was dissing God. And, and there was some real major fallout. All true. So he failed. On the upside, he remains the standard God upholds for every king after him. Every king is judged by David. And it's not because of his failures. It, it's because God always said, he, his heart is after me and my things. He fails, and he failed miserably and big time, but God still he repented. God says, you know, David would have been put to death under the law. God says, I've covered his sin, and I've restored him. He, he paid awful prices, too, guys, for his sin. The sword will never leave your house. Uh, God told him because of that. But he, but he restored him, and David remained the gold standard for kings ever after. Here's the thing. You know, um, Moses didn't get to go in the land of promise. So Moses gives the law, read John 1, you know, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, Moses was never going to go into the land of promise, guys. Never. Because Moses as a picture says the law can get you this far, but it can't get you over the river. You can't get into the land of promise by the law. And Moses is the man of the law. He stops at the border. He's not going over. Moses can take us so far. The law can take us so far. Uh, David was never going to get this perfect kingdom. It was never going to happen. But, but David and his desire sort of leads our eyes to where they were always meant to, which is, guys, there is a kingdom coming. And David's thinking about it, and his eyes are on the king. And he's thinking about what that looks like. He's aspiring nobly. He's going to fail because he can't do it, but his son can. His greater son can and will. And so when we read about David's aspiration, yes, it failed, but it points us to David's greater son. Second Samuel 7, the promise is given. You know, your son, he's going to come, and he's going to have the kingdom, and the kingdom's never going to end. And so we want to remember, yeah, when we see of David's failure and Israel's just grotesque failures, they were, they were never meant to be the whole deal. But they point us to Christ and what's promised in Christ. So, David's desires for God's city and people was always meant to point us to Christ. No one less could pull off what God and, uh, had planned for David to point to. So, what David hoped to do imperfectly and temporarily, Jesus does perfectly and we would say permanently, ultimately. And at Christmas, we remember that Jesus' birth was the first step in God's big plan of redemption leading to Jesus' kingdom. So listen to this from Isaiah 11, just briefly. Uh, his, speaking of the Messiah who would come that we know as Jesus, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. God's King, His Messiah, is going to live in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what His eyes see or decide disputes by what His ears hear. He won't, it won't be based on appearances only that this messianic king this promised one will judge but with righteousness with justice he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth he, these are his i wills he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked this is exactly what david was going to do this is what messiah will do righteousness shall be the belt of his waist faithfulness the belt of his loins 
they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, in the Messiah's holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's coming. That's the millennial kingdom. So Jesus is going to pull that off. No one else can. Jesus is going to pull that off. Later, when the last earth age is over and Jesus institutes a new heaven and new earth, listen to some of the Apostle John's description. Now, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you know that uh, the new Jerusalem, that's our future home, and, and God's in it, and, he, and he's, he's the light, he's the light of the sun and the moon combined, and the river of life comes from his throne, and the trees of life are there, the saints of God are there, and they see him as he is, and he's their God, and we're his people, we praise him, all that's glorious, that's the positives. What will it look like? It'll be grand, and that's just the beginning, right? It's hardly, hardly mentioned. That's just the beginning. But what won't be there? Just thinking of that thing that we tend to tense about just related to justice. What won't be there? This is Revelation 21, 8 and 27. Cowardly, faithless, detestable murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Their portion is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Revelation 22, 15, outside are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What do you not see in Jesus' eternal kingdom? Injustice, wickedness, evil. It does not exist there. It will not exist there. David's kingdom was meant to point to that grand reality that's yet to come. And it requires, on one hand, God's loyal love, his steadfast love, and on the other, it requires God's justice, and we're going to see that yet in Jesus' reign on the earth for a thousand years and certainly in the heavenly eternal kingdom. So, winding down, we'll wind down right here. On your study sheet, I hope you use that. Do I embrace what God embraces? Do I embrace what God loves? Do, do my I wills reflect God and God's character? Do I hate and shun what God hates and shuns, what he calls out? Is that what I do? Do my I wills and I will nots reflect God's character, what he values, Christ? Here's another thing. Does our church, do we collectively? So Lion Lamb is an expression of God's presence on earth. And, you know, churches are known sort of for, they, all churches have some kind of reputation. You know, that church, they're like this or that church, they're like that. What would others that know anything about Lionel, how would they look at the church and what would they think we value? Somebody comes in here on a Sunday morning, they've never been here before. What do we value? What are we saying I will to? What are we rejecting? What are we saying I won't, I will not to? What, what, does that characterization, would that be what God wants it to be? Would we be reflecting Christ and Christ's characteristics for anybody who knows anything about Lion Lamb Church, that would be a thing. Is there a little bit of heaven on earth because of our presence? Heaven is not here yet. But is there a little bit of the scent or the aroma or the hint of heaven on earth because we're here now? Okay, well, if you would, rise and we'll close by reading a passage out of Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5. Read with me, please. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their head.
need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will 